You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Welcome, friend, to episode number 120 of the Business for Good podcast. I'm glad you've joined us. You may not think about it that much, but a big part of what keeps you alive, among other things, is nitrogen. The plants that you eat need nitrogen to grow. So for centuries, farmers have been applying it to soil to make their acreage more productive. Prior to the 20th century, nitrogen fertilizer used to come from animal feces, animal blood and bones and so on. That is still common in organic agriculture today, but most row crops these days are fertilized with human-made nitrogen produced by a high-energy reaction known as the Haber-Bosch process. Or if you take Fritz Haber's view of things rather than Carl Bosch's, you might just call it the Haber process, which is a story unto itself. The creation of synthetic nitrogen nitrogen is a big reason we're able to feed 8 billion humans today on the planet, since it enables us to produce a lot more food from the same acre of land. But there's much to be desired about how we fertilize crops today. Not only, as I said, is it highly energy intensive to fix nitrogen from the air and turn it into something bioavailable to plants, but the application of all that nitrogen also creates major runoff pollution and air emissions problems from our farms. But What if, instead of doing all that hard work of turning nitrogen into ammonia ourselves, we could simply coax soil microbes to do it for us? That's what a startup founded in 2011 called Pivot Bio is doing. They've gene-edited microbes to restore their natural ability to convert atmospheric nitrogen and deliver it to crops by adhering to the roots of the plants. These nitrogen-fixing microbes are applied either in the furrow at planting or directly on the seed before planting, forging a symbiotic relationship that allows the plant to thrive with a lot less synthetic nitrogen application. And we have got Pivot Bio's President and Chief Operating Officer Lisa Nunez Safarian on the show to talk all about it. I was so excited to get her on because nitrogen, it turns out, is a very big business with a global fertilizer business nearly $200 billion in value. As you'll hear, Pivot Bio has raised a whopping $600 million plus from venture investors since their inception, with a valuation nearing $2 billion, or 1% of the entire global fertilizer industry. Wiesa tells us in this conversation that Pivot's microbes were used on 3 million cropland acres in 2022, reducing the need for a huge amount of synthetic fertilizer and generating about $50 million in 2022 revenue for Pivot Bio. Even if you don't know much about agriculture, I promise you this conversation is both comprehensible and riveting, and it showcases the potential for biotechnology to slow climate change, clean up the environment, and produce more food with fewer resources. I now bring you Pivot Bio's President and Chief Operating Officer, Lisa Nunez-Safarian. Lisa, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Hey, it's really great to be chatting with you. First, let me ask you, as I just finished reading The Alchemy of Air, have you read that book? I have, actually. In fact, I was just recommending it to some of our sales reps the other day. Oh, very cool. Okay, well, before I endorse it, which I certainly will, why do you recommend it to sales reps? Well, it really is fascinating when you think about the history of nitrogen or synthetic fertilizer, however you want to term it. And what I find most interesting is we're talking about something that was invented a hundred years ago, literally, and we haven't had any new technology in this space for that period of time. 
And yet, if you think about synthetic nitrogen, you think about fertilizer, 50% of our food, the world's food for people and animals is made possible because of synthetic nitrogen. And so it's something we absolutely have to have to feed the world, but it really just emphasizes not just how it transformed, but the fact that there's been really nothing new for 100 years in this space. Yeah, it's such an interesting story. I think what you're saying certainly resonates with me as well, but just reading about the history of how nitrogen was synthesized, and what we did before synthetic nitrogen, which is essentially using guano, and the fact that there were actual wars between nations over getting access to guano to export it to America and Europe because that's what they needed to fertilize their fields. And you know, you think about what we go to war today over oil or maybe even in the future water. But back in the, you know, in the 18th or even part of the 19th century, people were literally going to war over control of bird and bat feces. I mean, it was an incredible story. I highly recommend the book. Yeah, it, it, it really is. And, um, and and they were predicting even back then, if we couldn't figure out something as the guano supply actually started to diminish, there were some dire predictions about how many people in the world would die. And, and you were talking about 4 billion people at the time. You weren't talking 8 billion plus. And so they even realized back then that while they were fighting over guano, that still wasn't the way to go and that they needed something different to come along to help feed the world. Riveting. Okay, well, we will link to that book, The Alchemy of Air, in the show notes of this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But rather than talking about how synthetic fertilizer was first invented, let's just talk about why this is important, Lisa. For people who don't know much about agriculture, I mean, maybe they know that the air that we breathe is virtually all nitrogen. You know, we think it's oxygen, but it's only like one-fifth oxygen. It's really like four-fifths nitrogen that goes into your lungs every single time. So if nitrogen is all around us, it's in every breath, why is it so hard to put it into the plant? Yeah. So when you think about, I'll call it row crops, think of corn, think of wheat, small grains, those types of crops, they're unable to take the nitrogen the way it is in the air and to actually utilize it to grow. So what has come out of it then is after we've gotten past guano, we've gotten to synthetic nitrogen, we have to apply synthetic nitrogen. And there's lots of different forms that you can use to get it into your field. But that's one of the nutrients, one of the key nutrients that the crops need in order to be able to grow. And so we've shifted over time to synthetic nitrogen that gets applied uh, often when planting and sometimes actually during the crop's growth, depending on what the need is for nitrogen at that time. So what's the problem? We're able to get nitrogen from the air and put it into the soil for the plants. Why do we need any innovation? Well, the first piece is we don't really pivot bios transforming it by taking it from the air to the plant. But if you think about synthetic nitrogen, it actually goes through a very intensive uh, production process that occurs that uses high amounts of natural gas, and it is incredibly inefficient to create. It's big, it's bulky, it has a lot of transportation costs, it has a lot of resources that are required in order to even be able to produce it and get it to the places where it needs to be. In fact, synthetic nitrogen is the, it's, it's agriculture's biggest, biggest problem as we think about pollution, whether we're talking about air or whether we're talking about water. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have in, enormous amounts of energy going into just fixing the nitrogen from the air so we can turn it into something that gets sold to all these farmers. But as you just pointed out, Lisa, it, 
there is a real problem that it doesn't all get uptaken by the plants, right? There's huge problems with nitrogen runoff going into waterways, which end up, you know, you think the nitrogen is important for the plants, but like with anything too much is a real problem. And so you end up uh, causing major dead zones in waterways, like in the Gulf of Mexico and other places because of so much synthetic nitrogen use on farms in America and, and around the world, right? That's correct. In some cases, only 40 to 60% of what actually gets applied by farmers actually hits the crop, reaches a crop to grow it. And to your point, a lot of it goes off into waters as nitrates, and that's what's causing the dead zones. But a lot of it also goes into the air. And when it goes into the air, it goes into the air as nitrous oxide. And we often think about, you know, carbon dioxide and carbon going to the air. Nitrous oxide is much more deadly, and it actually stays in the atmosphere for 100 years. So you really have two problems with synthetic nitrogen. One is the air and one is the water. And then, of course, you've got the waste where a lot of it's just sitting in the soil doing nothing because it has not reached the crop it was intended to grow. Yeah. So this is an elementary question from for you know somebody who doesn't really know much about agriculture, but if only half or so of it is getting taken up by the plants, why don't farmers just apply half as much? Uh, because half of that will go away as well. You can't control it, right? It's it's you can't control the weather, you can't control, you know, the heat, you can't control the water, and you so you can't control how much is actually going to go to the the crop which is why more is applied that's really actually used because you don't know which part is going to get there by when. Okay. So how do you get into this, Lisa? What's, you know, you, you have had a very illustrious career, both at Monsanto and, and then Bayer once Bayer acquired Monsanto. But what was it that led you to think that you wanted to be involved in agriculture in the first place? Did you grow up on a farm? Like what was the motivation for you? No, I did not grow up on a farm. I I live in a rural type area, but not on a farm. I was putting myself through college and I was going to Southern Illinois University and I was in IT actually. And Monsanto had a co-op program where you could leave school, work for them for six months, go back to school and they might invite you back. And it was a significant amount, much more money than waiting tables was which what I was doing to get through college. And they would also pay for school if you wanted to go at night. So Monsanto was very generous with their co-op program. So I started there and actually I just took a full-time job after I graduated in their IT area, which I discovered pretty quickly was not where I wanted to be. And so I moved over into the operations area. And about that time, Monsanto was spun off as an agriculture-only company. And so I just sort of fell into ag in those roles. And, And once I met the farmers and learned what we did and spent time out in the field and walking through cornfields and soybean fields, I just fell in love with it. And what, what I really loved about it was it's so important, right? I mean, it, it, farmers feed the world, you know, they feed and clothe the world and there's just really no denying that. And so I fell in love with it and did that for 34 years until I retired from Bayer in 2020. And, and why'd you retire? Well, you know, I'd worked for Monsanto for 32 years and then Bear bought Monsanto and I've been doing the same job for many, many years and I didn't want to move to Germany and take other types of positions. So I thought, well, this is a good time to retire. My husband was retired. He thought this would be a great idea. We'd be retired together and that lasted for about three months. <laughs> and then, uh, I became bored and I think he was thinking I needed a job as well. So I decided I'd go on to boards. I thought that would be a good thing to do. And, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen to go on the Pivot Bio board. And once I learned about the Pivot Bio product and met the people, just fell in love with it. And so about a year later, they asked if I wanted to join the company full time as the chief operating officer. 
And uh, I had three rules for taking a job. One was it had to be meaningful. One was I had to learn something. It wasn't going to just be the same things I'd done for so many years. And the third one was that I would have to have fun. And from what I can tell, joining Pivot Bio was going to meet all three of those. And, and it has. It's, it's been all of that. And so I've been there full time now as president and chief operating officer for about a year. Very nice. Very nice. Well, it's certainly a very cool company and I'm eager to dive right in to talk about what it is because you're saying that you wanted something meaningful. Why is it meaningful? Like, What is the meaning in Pivot Bio that you were seeking? Sure. So there's really two pieces. One, the product itself is very valuable to farmers and that it's a consistent, dependable form of nitrogen. And they can depend that when they put our product down, they're going to get the full use of nitrogen, it's not going to go somewhere else. So just from a farmer perspective, it's, it's a great product for farmers. But when you take the impact or the not the impact on the earth, the sustainability aspect of the product, it's phenomenal. What it replaces and what it does for the earth is like nothing I've ever seen. And so when you want to talk about meaningful, it's meaningful for the farmer and it's meaningful for all of us because it's incredibly meaningful for the earth. I look at this and, and I look at this very much as I look at biotechnology. I was at Monsanto when biotechnology was launched and it transformed agriculture. And I am positive that Pivot Bio is also transforming agriculture as we're replacing synthetic nitrogen. Cool. So you're, you're saying it is good for farmers and it is good for the environment. Tell us what it is. What are you actually making and selling at Pivot Bio? Sure. So we're actually making microbes. And well, we're taking microbes, we're not making them, but we're, we're taking microbes that already existed in the soil naturally. And those microbes naturally were taking nitrogen out of the air and creating ammonia to feed a plant. But the problem is over time, there's so much extra nitrogen in the soil, the microbes essentially were just turning off. They sensed the nitrogen, they said, I don't need to do my job, or they did it very with very little luster. And, so we, and and sorry to interrupt you, Lisa, but you mean there's so much nitrogen because we applied it there? Correct. It's mm -hmm. extra nitrogen that got applied that never reached the crop to grow it. So we've taken those microbes and we've edited them and basically told them, even if you see some nitrogen hanging out in the soil, still do your job. Pull it from the air, make ammonia, feed the plant that you've colonized on. So essentially, we have these microbes and we apply them. There's a couple of different ways to get on the farmer's seed. And, and we're specifically, our main product is corn. We also have one for wheat and sorghum and small grains. And essentially, once those microbes colonize on the roots, they spend the entire life of that plant pulling nitrogen from the air, creating ammonia, feeding the plant, and living off the sugars that the plant gives off. What is really great about these is they're, they're weatherproof, essentially. Let's say it gets really hot. It doesn't go into the air. It still stays on the roots. It still feeds the plant. Let's say you get a lot of water. It doesn't wash away. It still stays on the roots. It still stays on the plant. And it can detect when the plant needs the most nitrogen during its growth stage. And it provides that additional nitrogen during the time when the plant needs it the most. When the plant dies, the microbes die. They go away. It's a symbiotic relationship. And once the host, the corn plant is dead or the wheat plant is dead, the microbes are dead as well and, and they go away. So it feeds that plant very consistently the entire time. And it's very, very dependable from a farmer perspective. 
That sounds exciting. You use some words that I want to make sure people understand. So you're saying you're editing these microbes. These are natural microbes and you're editing, editing them so that normally they would not produce ammonia because there's already fertilizer in the soil, but now they are still going to be doing exactly what they would, even if there weren't synthetic nitrogen. So basically the farmer can apply a lot less nitrogen is the point of that. I want to just look into the word edit here. So you're saying you're gene editing them? Are you genetically engineering them? Like gene editing them? We are gene editing them and um, we're not inserting inserting anything new. So as you think about typical biotechnology, a lot of times that means you're inserting something new into the genome. We're not. We're simply turning the switch back on that was there in the first place. So nothing new has been entered into the into the gene. So it is not considered a GMO by US standards. Correct. And that really determined that's depended country by country. So as we look at the US, it's not GMO for US. It's been declared not GMO in Brazil. It's got a little bit of a different definition in Canada, but it will be not, you know, it will go through Canada, we believe we'll have approval soon. It's not GMO in Kenya. So as we continue to go through and try to gain regulatory approvals in different countries, so far, there have been quite a few that have aligned as the U.S. has to say that it's not GMO. And who determines that? Not not whether it's GMO or not, but just regulatory approval in the United States. Did you have to go through some approval process with the FDA or the USDA to use this on crops? Yes, absolutely. So we just go through the normal regulatory agencies as you would with crops, USDA, and, and they're the ones that determine you know, what the approvals are. And of course, after we've proved efficacy and, you know, everything on the label and safety and that sort of thing. And that's true. It's a different body, depending on which country you're talking to, you have to get regulatory approval. Okay, cool. So basically by editing it, you're, you're using like CRISPR in order to change or your, your facial expression indicates maybe not. So let me let you know. But a technology similar to CRISPR. Yes. Okay. Got it. Cool. So it's proven safe. It's approved by regulatory authorities. How much nitrogen can you actually prevent? So you're saying that this does the job of the nitrogen, but my understanding is you're not able to displace all the synthetic nitrogen, at least not yet. Correct. Not yet. So today our product is called Proven 40, and you can replace up to 40 pounds of nitrogen per acre. And then depending on where you farm, um, that could be 20, 25% of the nitrogen that you typically would use. So you you can subtract up to a quarter of the nitrogen that is needed here. And that's a pretty significant amount and a pretty significant economic savings, presuming that this is cheaper than the synthetic nitrogen they're buying. So when the farmer puts Proven 40 on their land, does it cost them more or less to do? Uh, Well, so it depends. So what we do is we look at our pricing. We don't move our pricing based upon fertilizer prices. So Historically, as you think about fertilizer prices rise dramatically when the price of energy goes up because it takes so much energy to create it. Uh, We have chosen not to increase our pricing based upon fertilizer pricing. And just like as fertilizer pricing comes down, we've chosen not to bring our product down. We're just a very stable price that we, we put out there for the marketplace. So the farmer knows what he's paying each time. So, for example, when we launched, we were slightly more expensive than some of the nitrogen possibilities. The last few years, we've been significantly cheaper than nitrogen possibilities. And now we'll have to wait and see how nitrogen prices 
price out because as you know, depending on what form of nitrogen you want to use and where you live and how far away you are from it will determine your actual price for nitrogen you would use. Mm. So right now you're saying essentially it's cheaper. It may not always be depending on where you are or how nitrogen price is. It's close to being cheaper. It might be slightly higher than let's say urea or depending on where you're at, maybe some anhydrous, but in some cases it's still definitely cheaper. In some cases you may be more at parity. Does the Russian invasion of Ukraine alter nitrogen prices? Oh, it is. It it altered prices very much. And so as you look at what's happened to farmers over the last couple of years, nitrogen just went really, really high. And a lot of it actually had to do with the fact that energy prices went so high. And so it really uh, follows energy pricing. As energy prices have come down, then the, the cost of fertilizer has come down. It follows that pattern. Interesting. Okay. I want to ask how the nitrogen purveyors view Pivot Bio, because to my knowledge, like Monsanto doesn't sell nitrogen, or am I wrong about that? No, you're correct. The, okay, um, right. If you call them the big ad, call them, nit- call them you know, Bayer or call them Syngenta or Corteva, they don't, they don't sell nitrogen. Right. It's, so who's big nitrogen then? Like who are the big purveyors? Yeah. One you would know for sure would be Nutrien. They're also, Nutrien is a, is a very big purveyor of nitrogen, and they are also the largest uh, retail uh, system mm-hmm. in North America. Okay. Um, of course, you can hear of Coke Brothers, and there, there's uh, Yara. There's, you know, some large fertilizer companies that either sell retail or sell it through distributors to get to retail, to get to farmers. Okay. So if I look at, let's say, the meat industry, which is something I'm far more familiar with, you have this nascent industry of startups trying to recreate the meat experience without animals, either through plant-based or maybe through fermentation or even through growing animal cells directly. And most of the big meat companies have a stake in these companies. They've invested in them. They've started their own branches of them. They've launched their own plant-based meat lines. Like You don't see a war between Tyson and those who are trying to take away market share from animal-based meat. What is it like in the nitrogen world? Does Nutrien consider Pivot Bio a threat to them? Do they consider it a potential partner? Is it an acquisition target? Like, What is the relationship between Pivot and the rest of the new breed of nitrogen uh, startups compared to the incumbents in the space today? Yeah. So compared to the incumbents, there hasn't really been a lot of conversation or communication at this point. And I think part of it is because we're so new. And as we continue to grow and get on more and more acres, my assumption is that we'll have more information about what that could look like in the future. Right now, to my understanding, as I look at just publicly released reports, the the nitrogen companies are more interested in how they can make the product that they produce better, more sustainable, and along those lines. So that seems to be primarily. But again, that's just from what I read. That's not been from any direct conversation. But to your knowledge, Nutrien and none of the other big nitrogen fertilizer purveyors have their own bioreactors trying to compete with Pivot, trying to create their own microbes. They're going to do, let's say, better than 40 pounds per acre. Not to my knowledge. Right. Interesting. Okay. Well, it would be riveting to see how, how this transpires, because if we do move to microbial sources of nitrogen, 
obviously have a major disruption to a multi-billion dollar industry that presumably is not eager to be displaced. So I, I can't wait to see more what happens, whether there's a cooperation or a confrontational stance that's taken between these, these two sectors here. In terms of multi-billion, you know, I read, Lisa, that the latest valuation, at least that I saw for Pivot Bio, was nearly $2 billion. The company's raised over $600 million. It was founded in uh, 2010, so you're 13 years in now, a gargantuan amount of investor interest in this company against over $600 million of venture capital put into this company. So how is it doing now? I know that you are on fields. This is obviously not a pre-revenue company. Are you getting close to a point of profitability? Will you have to continue raising investor cash? Is there an IPO in the near future looking for Pivot Bio? So last year, we were on a little over 3 million acres of corn, which is a sizable sizable acreage. We grew again this year. We haven't announced yet what our numbers were this, this past year, but we do continue to grow and strong farmer demand continues to be there. So you know, our goal at some point is to do an IPO. Now, part of that's going to depend on what the financial markets look like. When is it more appealing to do an IPO or when it's not? But that is definitely what we aspire to do, whether that's, you know, in 18 months or, or something a little longer, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to say, but we are putting everything in place within our company, you know, growing sales, growing the company to the right size to be able to IPO at the right time. So that's exactly what we're working on. Nice. So I know that you talk about the number of acres that you're on. Do you also talk about the amount of revenue that has been generated? I see in public statements, the company has talked about tripling revenue and, and, and increasing revenue, but are there actual dollars that are attributed to that? Yeah, we talked about that in our release from last year, and I believe we were about over $50 million in revenue. So again, you know, we're, we've got the products, the farmers demand it, we're meeting farmer demand. And really right now it's all about scaling and being able to continue to grow to meet the demand that's out there. So is that the limiting factor? Is it that you can't sell more of it or you can't make enough of it to satisfy the demand? Like if you had double the, I presume you're creating these microbes via fermenters, right? Correct. So if you had, you know, if you had double the fermenter size, would you have double the revenue? I don't know if it'd be one-to-one, but definitely as we can continue to provide more product, our revenue will absolutely increase because the demand is there. Yeah. Where are these fermenters? Are these in California or they're in the Midwest? We have multiple. We use contract manufacturers. We have them. We have four or five different ones and they're spread out. Some are in the Midwest. Some are, I think we've got one in Wisconsin, but they're, they're spread in different places. One, we don't want to put all our eggs in one basket and two, we need to make sure that we've got yeah. enough capacity and continue to grow that capacity to make sure that right. we can meet demand. You don't want to put all of your microbes in one fermenter. That's exactly right. Yeah. Very cool. So you guys have decided basically to, to put all your money into the R&D phase, not to the production. Like you don't want to own the manufacturing capacity for this is what I'm hearing you say. Not right now. We're very capital light right now. You know, obviously as years go by, you know, we'll be making different decisions potentially and looking at different alternatives. But right now we've been very successful using contract manufacturers. Right. Cool. Speaking of fermentation, there are a ton of fermentation companies that need nitrogen as well. And, you know, they buy synthetic nitrogen to use to feed their own microbial fermentations. Is there a pathway toward Pivot Bio to selling into that market as well? Or is this only for on-crop application? Right now, we're concentrating on on on-crop application. Having said that, as we continue to move you know, through this journey, it's clear that there are other needs, even for other crops and the ones that we're focusing on. 
And there may be other needs, as you've mentioned, for being able to provide nitrogen. But right now, we're really focusing on the crops. Interesting. Okay. Well, this is really exciting. I can't wait to see what happens as Pivot Bio continues to try to take away some of the market share from the big nitrogen companies. I mean, if it really is the case that you know you can replace a quarter of the nitrogen needs, that's a pretty big threat to them. If you're doing $50 million of revenue, that's a lot of revenue for a, a startup. But in the grand world of obviously nitrogen sales, which is tens of billions of dollars a year, um, there's still some time to go to scale up and get more of it out there. But I imagine that as the company can, continues being more and more successful, that there will be some type of dialogue that's going to be had with the nitrogen purveyors. And so let me ask you, Lisa, Like obviously you've done a lot in your life. You've had a very illustrious career in agriculture and are now the president of a really important startup that's doing really cool work to try to mitigate the climate crisis or at least slow it down and, and help farmers in the process. So are there other companies that you wish existed? Like obviously, you know, you were going to retire. Now you are uh, president of this very important company. But are there other companies that maybe you wish that somebody else who has more time in their hands would do that either in this space or others that would also have some positive impact on the world? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting when I think about that. There are so many different ag startups out there that have really, really cool ideas. I think that can be very effective, not only for the farmer, but for the climate. What I would wish is maybe not a, for a particular new company to come up, but that we could figure out how to do better collaboration across these new companies with the big companies, because I think there's plenty of space for everybody and, and as opposed to having to do it all yourself or kind of it has to be invented here kind of mentality. But I think if we could figure out how to get people collaborating faster, sooner and getting the resources out there, I think there are a lot of, of new companies out there that could bring value to the farmer as well as to the earth. And so to me, it's about how we work together as much as what would the new company be. Cool. Speaking of working together, it raises the question for me about what the reaction is, Lisa, from people who oppose biotechnology and food and agriculture, people who oppose genetic modification. They also oppose even gene editing oftentimes. So has there been a negative reaction from those folks who want a like, you know, I would suggest they're, you know, seeking more of a return to like what they would perceive as natural or like 19th century agricultural practices. Like how do they interact with companies like Pivot Bio? So we really haven't heard a lot about that. You know, I would say the, the one piece would be as we've gone to the EU to see about getting approval, they're still thinking about edited microbes as uh, GMO or biotechnology. Now, having said that, there's also been a lot of conversation in the EU about maybe they need to rethink their they're thinking around this because especially with the focus on climate, I, I think the benefits that you can bring or we can bring and others can bring to, to sustainability and to the climate crisis, I think are outweighing maybe some of the concerns about the edited piece. I mean, if I, if I give you an example, in just the few million acres that we were on this past year with the amount of nitrogen that was avoided, uh, we avoided 226,400 metric tons of carbon emissions. That's enough to power 44,000 U.S. homes in a year. And we replaced over 32,000 tons of synthetic fertilizer. And we're talking about a very small portion of the existing corn acres in the U.S. These numbers will grow dramatically as we continue to get on more acres replacing 40 pounds or we actually increase the 40 pounds to replace more than 40 pounds. So I think people are, 
to me, if you look at that benefit, it gets really difficult to maybe think about, oh, no, let's just bypass this new technology because I don't like the editing piece because the value that comes from it from a sustainability and a climate perspective is just overwhelming. Yeah, so I agree with you. And I think that you're making a very logical argument, Lisa. That's why I view Pivot as a business for good, right? And not not a business for bad. My experience oftentimes is with the anti-GMO activists that logic is not necessarily the, the, the motivating factor, right? There's just a feeling that it's so-called unnatural. And so some of them, not all, but some of them seem to have a knee-jerk reaction to the application of biotechnology to agriculture. And part of it, I think, Maybe just that a lot of the times in the past, some applications of biotechnology have not been beneficial for the environment. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Um, But in this case, it seems very obvious that it is uh, for all the reasons that you were just noting. Um, Have you ever read a book called Resetting the Table by Robert Paulberg? I have not. I definitely recommend it. We actually had him. He's a Harvard professor. We had him on this show um, as a guest several episodes ago. We'll link to that in the show notes of this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. But um, it's a really excellent look at what it takes to feed, as you said, 8 billion people without destroying the planet. And his basic argument is we need a lot more biotechnology, not less, and we need to eat less meat. Those are like his his main arguments. Like we're going to have to basically raise fewer animals and apply a lot more technology in order to feed the world. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I am so enthusiastic about what Pivot Bio is doing. And so my hat is off to you for the work that you're doing and your colleagues as well, Lisa. Let me ask you one final question here. Obviously, again, you've had a lengthy career that's done a lot of important things. Have there been resources for you that you thought were useful that you would recommend to others? Anything you've read or seen or heard that you think somebody listening to the show will benefit by doing the same? Yeah, I think so. I'll tell you one, a resource that really impacted a big part of my career and how I led teams and how I did business. And that is uh, Patrick Lencioni's work. You know, the, the, the book that sort of started me on that was Five Dysfunctions of a Team, but his most recent work is called The Advantage. And when you read the book, it sounds very simplistic. You know, there's, there's not like a lot of, you know, s- magic in the book. But, but it's so true that when you bring people together, they can be the smartest people, they can be the most innovative people, they can be the most passionate people. But if they don't work together as a team, you're not going to be successful. You can have the very best product and you'll get beat by somebody who has a lesser product who's got a better team running the business. And so that piece of work, I think, is, is really helpful. It's, it's the soft skills a lot of people don't like to think about soft skills, right? You like to think about data. You like to think about moving fast. And do I really have to stop and have this meeting and talk to people this way? And the answer is, yeah, you do. And so for me, that was a big one. The other one, I, the other book that I read that really impacted me was uh, Simon Sinek's book, The Infinite Game. Because what it really talks about is there's really not about winners and losers. It's about how do you continue to advance and, and do good and perpetuate and make the right decisions for a company, for a product, so that you you can have a, a generational company, which is what we'd like to have here at Pivot, versus just trying to hit every quarter with your numbers and sort of you kind of win at each quarter or you win at the end of the year, which really, I think, helps people think differently about their work and differently about their choices. And I think it brings a much bigger richness uh, to the company and to the products and to the people. 
That's great. That's really cool. And I definitely agree with you when we talk about generational companies. Like, you know, we think in, in the startup world, Pivot Bio has been around for 13 years and that kind of feels like an old, like an old guard company, 13 years. But of course, the most successful companies are around not 13 years, but over a century. And especially if you do business in Asia and you find out there are some of these companies that have been around for centuries, plural. It's like truly right. incredible to think about what a sustainable business actually looks like. So I wish Pivot Bio all the success. I hope it'll be around for centuries and continue dr- dramatically reducing the amount of synthetic nitrogen that is needed. So Lisa, thanks so much for your work. It's great to be talking with you and I can't wait for that IPO. I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.